Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the sacrifices of Leviticus. And here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, David Field, and James Jordan are going to discuss the sacrifices themselves. They're going to touch on many different topics, including an overview of what a sacrifice would look like, how the offerings are prefigured in the stories of Abraham and other stories of Genesis, as well as how these offerings relate to our worship today. Before we get to the episode, we wanted to remind you about our YouTube channel. You can find a link to our channel in the show notes, and we'd love for you to be a subscriber. We put out a new video every single week on Bible, liturgy, and culture, and we really think you'll enjoy it. With that, we hope that you are encouraged and sharpened as you tune into this conversation. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, who's joining us from England. Uh, David Field, who is still visiting us, also from England, has been in Birmingham. It's been uh, wonderful to have you around for the last week and a half or so. And uh, I trust that this is the first of many visits to Birmingham and uh, that we'll see you again. And once again, we're very delighted to have uh, Jim Jordan with us and uh, to have him contributing to the podcast today. We're continuing in our series on Leviticus. Uh, Last time we looked at the uh, sanctuary and looked at uh, physical, uh, something, some things about the physical appearance of the tabernacle. And then we discussed various dimensions of the symbolism and meaning of the tabernacle. We could have gone on at much greater length, but at least that gives us enough to get a feel for how the offerings are going to work. That, that's the focus of this series. We're looking at the first seven chapters of Leviticus. We want to have, get a grasp on the system of offerings that are, that's presented there and the specific offerings that are described, the rituals are described. Um, before we start going to the specific offerings, we're doing one more introductory uh, podcast, that is this one. Uh, so that we can give an overview of uh, of the offerings, the terminology that's used for the different for the for offerings in general, and some of the background theology of the offerings. Uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, difficult things about Leviticus, as I mentioned in the first of our podcasts, is that we have detailed rules about rituals that we no longer perform, and these detailed rules are given without much explanation of what they're for and how they why they're doing, why they're done the way they're done. And we have to uh, either just say, it's the way God wanted it, and so Israel was supposed to do it that way, or we have to look outside of Leviticus to other parts of the Bible to try to figure out what's being represented in the uh, rituals of offering. And um, the latter approach is what we'll be taking. We want to look at the Levitical rituals in the light of uh, things that have been revealed earlier in the Bible, uh, narratives earlier in the Bible, uh, events from earlier in the Bible, uh, and uh, those will provide a an interpretive frame for us to understand what's going on in the offerings. So we'll, uh, today we'll be thinking about how are the offerings related to the uh, to the original setting of Adam and Eve in the garden and their expulsion from the garden, or how are the offerings related to the Exodus? How are the offerings related to Passover? How are the offerings related to uh, the Akedah? The uh, Abram's uh, binding of Isaac and uh, the substitute of an, of an animal for Isaac. All of those narratives are at play 
and help to explain different details of the offerings. Uh, but they're not, that's not explicitly brought up, so we have to be reading Leviticus in the light of prior revelation. Let me launch into this um, by pointing to one of the terms that's used uh, in Leviticus to describe offerings in general. I'm trying to discipline myself to say Levitical offerings rather than Levitical sacrifice, because the word that's translated as sacrifice in the Old Testament is typically a specific kind of offering. And the uh, the word that the words and phrases that are used to describe uh, the overall system and the and the collection of offerings that's a different a different set of terms. One of them appears right at the beginning of Leviticus. Let me read the first couple of verses of the book. Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meaning, saying, "Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or from the flock." If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it the doorway of the tent of meeting. Uh, you can't pick it up very well in English, but if you were to look at it, the Hebrew or the Hebrew transliteration, or, uh, or a, Hebrew, a Hebrew transliteration or interlinear, uh, you'd be able to see that there's a, a noun and a verb made from the same root that are used repeatedly throughout those verses. Uh, the verb is karav, uh, which means to come near. It's used in a particular Hebrew form that means to cause something to come near or to bring near. Uh, the verbs that are uh, translated as bring are translations of karav. The verb translated as offer in my New American Standard in verse 2, that's also karav. So you could translate verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall bring it near a man, a male without defect. He shall bring it near at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So you have that verb being used uh, several times in the first couple of verses. You also have a noun form of the same root being used in the first couple of verses. The noun form is korban. Karav, korban are taken from the same root in the Hebrew uh, when the when my New American Standard uh, translates a word as offering, in verse 2 it's used twice, in verse 3 it's used again, that's korban. And then when you get to verse 3, you start specifying a particular kind of korban. If his korban is a burnt offering, the Hebrew, the Hebrew term there is olah, uh, which we'll discuss in the next episode in detail, but that's uh, the word doesn't mean burnt, uh, it means ascend or go up. So we're calling it an ascension offering. So if his korban is an ascension from the herd, then he follows this procedure. But that phrasing indicates that korban is the general category. That's a category for, that's a term for all the offerings. And then the ascension offering is a particular type of korban. It's a, it's a particular way of making a korban. So what can we draw from that terminology? Um, not just that korban is the general term, but the use of the verb and the noun together in the early verses of Leviticus point us to the, one of the basic meanings of the entire system of offerings. A korban is something that is brought near. A korban is a means by which a worshiper draws near. And that points us to the a significant dimension, a fundamental dimension of the whole system of offerings. The offerings are, are uh, you could say, uh, rituals of approach. 
uh, or gate rituals. If you want to come through a gate and into the presence of God, you have to go through a, a particular uh, set of uh, rites. You have to go through a particular rite in order to draw near. All of the offerings in different ways enable an offerer to draw near to the Lord. They're all korban uh, that enable drawing near. Uh, Jim has translated korban as near bringing. I think that's the term you've used in order to bring out the parallel between the noun and the verb, so that we can see we can see that the the offering has other dimensions as we'll see, but it is uh, it has this fundamental significance of something. Uh, it's a it's a means by which we come near to the Lord. Reading Leviticus one, perhaps it would stir memories for us if we are thinking back to the book of Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 15, when God cuts a covenant with Abraham, he instructs Abraham to bring five specific animals. And those are the five specific animals of the sacrificial system that we see in Leviticus. The creatures that are of the cattle, sheep and goats, and then the doves and the pigeons. And just as in that account, the animals are divided save for the birds, and the birds are not divided. Um, and it suggests, at least to me, that there is some way in which we should be reading this sacrificial event, these sacrificial event, events in the book of Leviticus, against the background of that fundamental covenant-establishing event, and Israel being represented by those five animals, and also that event being recapitulated in various ways through the daily and um, regular sacrifices of the tabernacle system. You can you can press the analogy, I think, by pointing out that the after Abram has divided these animals, set out the birds, then the Lord appears as a flaming torch in an oven, and he he passes between the pieces of the animal. So the if you were to visualize this, you would see this swirling flame with animal parts surrounding it. If you think of what what's happening as an offer places the parts of an animal on the altar, you have the same, it's the same picture, it's the same thing. Which I, yeah, I think the, the connection, as you pointed out, is the uh, Abram's, the Abraham, Abrahamic event in Genesis 15 is a covenant confirmation or a covenant cutting. Uh, and every time the priests in the daily offerings or an Israelite worshiper makes an offering, uh, there's uh, a kind of covenant renewal, covenant recapitulation uh, ritual going on. There also seems to be parts that are designated to the tending of the or the worshipper has to deal with certain parts and the priests have to deal with others which makes me wonder about the two parts of the animals in the account of genesis 15 whether we're seeing something related to that such as in um verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1 the priests Aaron's sons have to lay the parts the head the fat in order on the wood the fire and the tape upon the altar and then the worshipper washes the entrails and legs with water and then brings those to the priest and it's a separation of the animal into parts different parties dealing with those different parts then bringing them together in the fire just to pick on that very uh, uh up on that very specifically and recalling something that uh jim has written in the part in the past that the head and the fat do not require washing, whereas the entrails and the legs do require washing. The head and the fat go up first. The entrails and the legs, after having been washed, 
follow. I think, Jim, you uh, referenced the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ himself as head and fat, not requiring washing and going up first, and then uh, the entrails and the legs, that which does require follow, uh, uh, washing, and then we follow Christ uh, near to God. Closer to the immediate context of Leviticus, uh, Alistair's pointed out that you can look at the different parts of the animal in relation to the division of labor in the ritual. So the priest is responsible for handling certain things, uh, the worshiper with other things. Certain parts of the animal represent Christ, as you say. I think that's true. Uh, they also represent priestly precedence. So the head uh, going into the altar first uh, is a priest leading the way into the presence of God. The, the animal is playing a kind of priestly role in leading the worshiper into the presence of God. That's part of the, the drawing near, the near bringing of the offering. The offering is uh, put in this uh, role of mediator. Um, and then the other parts of the animal are placed in. And so in, in the altar, uh, as in Genesis 15, I think this was what you were suggesting, Alistair, is that you have the two parts represent a, a, a division within the people, but then consumed together in the glory of God. They're reunited in the glory of God. So the head and the the head and the uh, entrails are burned together. Uh, they're turned to smoke together. Even though you have this priority of entry, uh, the way it's, the way that the text go, uh, the, the way the text describes the event is that all of it is turned to smoke together. Uh, so priest and people are reunited. And I think you can you can think about that that dismemberment at a couple of different levels. The animal representing Israel, and so. Uh, a portion of the animal represents uh, the priesthood. A portion of the animal represents the lay worshiper. They're reunited in the in the altar fire. You can think about it as the as the individual worshiper. The animal is representing that worshiper. And in order to get to God, he's going to have to permit himself to undergo the dismemberment of God's judgment, and then enter into God's fire and God's glory. And he's reconstituted, and he becomes coherent only when he's. Uh, in the presence of God and becomes united with that flame. For many modern Christian readers of Leviticus, we approach the text with a focus upon death as the moment of sacrifice. But yet within Leviticus 1 and elsewhere throughout Leviticus, there's a lot of emphasis upon a number of discrete stages, and each one of those seems to have a significant to represent a significant dimension of what's taking place in sacrifice. So we can think about the ascension of the sacrifice and smoke, or the division of the pieces and the laying them, of them out, the laying of the hand upon the sacrificial animal, or something like the um, pleasant aroma to the Lord, the bridal food, the eating a meal together with the Lord, and the way that those different parts of the animal are distributed to different persons, how they have to be prepared. All of these seem to be part of the logic of sacrifice, not just the act of killing or death. In fact, the actual act of killing will often seem not to be the foregrounded act. It will be the application of the blood that might be more emphasized. How should we, how should we relate these sorts of themes to a a Christian understanding of sacrifice, where how can we correct our understanding of sacrifice through these themes that we tend to neglect? 
Well, maybe if we started, uh, so to speak, at the end of the process, where is all this heading? Then it is heading for um, uh, assumption into God or union with God. And there's a number of times in Leviticus where the offerings themselves are referred to as uh, different translations, but food offerings for God or the bread of our God. And so uh, the Lord's intention in uh, killing us, dismembering us, uh, bringing us up, pulling us back together again, ultimately, is that uh, we should be united with him, brought into his glory. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a very good way to put it. Then uh, two things occur to me, Alistair. One is the August, Augustine's definition of sacrifice, uh, which he describes as any act by which we seek union and society with God. So it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a very, um, any act is pretty broad. <laughs> it covers, well, any act. You, the whole spectrum of possible human actions can become sacrifice in the, in the way Augustine is describing it. And it, it doesn't necessarily involve uh, loss, death. Uh, it doesn't involve sacrifice in the way that we tend to think about it. Uh, as long as it's an act that that we perform in order to seek union with God, but when it does involve loss and sacrifice, I think this is the, the this is where uh, the point you're making comes out, David. Martyrdom, a classic example of Christians pretty literally imitating the the self sacrifice of Christ. Uh, martyrs give themselves, give their own lives in order that either give themselves. Uh, you think about it individually, they give their lives in order that they themselves will be united in Christ's death and so in his resurrection and glorification. They give themselves so that they can be a blessing to the rest of the church. They can they can be the, the seed that uh, brings the harvest for the rest of the church. So there's a just to focus on the moment of loss, that to offer sacrifice is to be deprived either of life or of possessions. That's only, that's stopping short of the full end. In every case, this law says, the priest shall offer up in smoke, transform it into smoke, on the communion site for an ascension, an offering by fire. Now, for some reason, I have that as a bridal offering of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And in each case, I've got that marked as bridal. So the entrails and the legs that are washed with water are according to me, (laughs) according to something I've got written down here from the past, and I don't have any way of checking it now. Um, Bridal allusion. We're we're here to help, Jim. We can we can remind you of why you have that in your Bible. Why why do I have that in my Bible, Oh Peter? You, oh Jim, you have it in your Bible because the Hebrew word there is isha, oh, which is the same consonants as isha, just different vocalization. That's right. Uh, isha is the word that's translated offering by fire, gift offering in some cases. 
Isha means woman yeah. because she's taking from the Ish. That's right. Yeah. That's so, right. Yeah. So this is a this is a bridal thing. Right. So if if we take that as there, there are a couple of different ways to determine the meaning of that term, but they're all etymological. I don't know that there are any cognates, but in other ancient languages, the usual etymology is through the word for fire, which it, which is ish. And you've suggested isha and isha, so uh, woman and fire, the the uh, uh, bridal food. Uh, one one implication of that is that these offerings are all. Uh, I, I I was talking earlier about korban as a way of coming near, a means of approach, but that gives a particular gloss to that. Uh, this is the bride's approach to the Lord. It's br- the bride's approach to her husband, uh, and as David was. Uh, saying a moment ago, it's that is another mode of union. That's another way of talking about the worshiper as a member of the bridal people seeking union with God and uh, the offerings being a pathway toward that that union, that covenant union, that marital union. And I think we could we could look at a there are other other hints of that theology, even though even if the term isn't used, there are other hints of that theology in the Song of Songs uh, referred to our. Uh, earlier series in the Song of Songs where we talked about the relationship between the erotic imagery of the Song of Songs and the uh, system of offerings in the temple. Uh, and we have there a, a portrait, right at the center of the Song of Songs, we have a picture of uh, marital union as mutual feasting. And the bride is the food that delights her husband, her lover. Uh, and that's what's happening here. So every every offering in the whole the whole tabernacle system of offerings. Uh, every offering is a continuing part of a continuing marriage supper. The tabernacle, you could say, is uh, the Lord's trysting place with His bride. I think that's. I know that's Lutheran talk. I don't know if it's Luther talk about the tabernacle, but the tabernacle is a trysting place between uh, Yahweh and His people, and the offerings are way of ways of renewing that that uh, marital union that the Lord has with Israel. So, are you agreeing with me or disagreeing with me? I, I was agreeing with you, Jim, oh. and further elaborating the theology behind that. It may have been hard to tell, huh? <laughs> I should have stated at the beginning. I agree with you. Okay. That, that's, a, that's a superior translation, and I think it opens up uh, an angle on looking at the offerings that uh, uh, really fruitful uh, not just in Leviticus, but in a lot, a lot of other places. Uh, going back to something you said in the last episode, we make uh, the system of offerings more complicated and alien than they are. If you think of this as marriage supper, that's a really easy category for Christians to grasp. The marriage supper of the Lamb is, and, and having a, a supper with God is, that's, that's something that's familiar to us. But we look at these rites and we think that's something else is going on. But no, that, that is what, what's going on. I also wanted to highlight the other uh, point that I think uh, uh, both Alistair and uh, David brought up is that that's uh, bridal food is a way to translate that term. Uh, but there are other places in Leviticus where the offerings are described as lechem uh, for Yahweh, the bread of Yahweh, uh, which uh, doesn't have the marital connotations, but does mean that the offerings are intended to be food, and bringing an offering is intended to be part of a, of a food ritual. Think of it this way, that if you were to watch an ancient Israelite prepare to go to the tabernacle for worship, what would it look like? He would be 
uh, finding a an unblemished animal from his flock or his herd. Uh, he would be baking some bread. He'd have some wine. Uh, and you'd, you couldn't tell by watching him whether he was preparing to go on a picnic or whether he was going to the tabernacle. False choice. <laughs> False <laughs> dilemma. He's going to have a picnic with God. So the, the very materials that are used for the offerings indicate that this is a food a food event. Not that if Psalm 50 makes it clear that Yahweh doesn't need Israel's food. It's not The theology is not like what you find in some paganism where human beings keep the gods, uh, sustain the gods by their offerings. But it is part of an ongoing uh, table fellowship with Yahweh. The altar is a table on which the Lord's portions are placed, and then the Lord is a generous host who doesn't eat all the food, but when his, when his uh, guests come to dinner, he receives uh, the royal portions because he's the king, but then he distributes food to his, uh, uh, to his court, to his people. So it's, again, as I said last time, it's a, it's a house of hospitality. That raises a question somewhat to the side of our discussion, and that it seems to me this, uh, this system can only apply to somebody who's fairly wealthy. It doesn't strike me that the ordinary Israelite has got extra goats and sheep lying around um, that he can bring, that he... He's never going to have an extra bull. Mm. That that's that's only when you have a national offering, or an an offering for the uh, high priest himself. Mm-hmm. That uh, sheep or goats are mainly for the leaders of the land, political leaders. That uh, turtle doves and pigeons are going to be what your ordinary Israelite is going to be bringing for an ascension offering. Um, Maybe he'll have flock members. I don't know if if there's anything further any of you have to say about this. Yeah, just I agree with you. I'd add a couple of things. One is that there are explicit points in Leviticus where birds are named as the offering for those who are poor, who can't afford a lamb. Yeah. Um, that's explicit in, for example, the, um, the right for cleansing after childbirth. Right. Uh, usually it's a lamb that's required, but if he is too poor or she is too poor for a lamb, she can bring a, a, a turtle dove or a pigeon. So there are provisions made for the poor to make the offerings that they need to make in order to be acceptable to the Lord. And to make offerings like, like you said, the uh, the ascension offering, which is you know uh, an offering for atonement and approach. You think about the feast, though. What what would happen in a festive situation? Uh, I, no doubt, you're right that there would be relatively few people. It would be the the one or the ten percent who would have a bowl or two to expend on a feast. Few would be able to give up. You know, two or three goats to to have a big to have a big go to have a big party. That's where the uh, less in Leviticus than in Deuteronomy, where the people are exhorted when they have their feast not to neglect the Levite who has no land, 
not to neglect the stranger who is in the land and, and may, may not have a land, may not have land or animals, to include them in the feast. And I think then if that's the case, then the, the landless poor, I think they'd be included by being included in these uh, in the in the feast that's sponsored by these wealthier Israelites. So I think the the pressure of the system is set up so that those who have the means would be hosts for uh, those who who don't have the means to participate. Yeah, and also the uh, the expectation of the law is that if Israel actually keeps the law, they'll all be rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they didn't keep the law, so they weren't rich. But uh, yep. the, law, the law is written to Israel as if they were all quite wealthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yet at the same time, shows what at least some of the institutions and mechanisms are for sharing the wealth with the whole community. So, yeah. you know, gleaning other forms of um, property rules about, you know, harvest rules that ensure that those who don't have land still share in the, abund- you know, we have abundant harvest. You still have people, even the poorest of the poor can share in the abundance of the harvest. Uh, we we talked about uh, Alistair brought up the um, Genesis fifteen background. Um, there are a number of other passages that I wanted to at least uh, bring attention to that are part of the background. Um, we've talked about uh, Genesis two and three as the background for the sanctuary, and Adam and Eve's exclusion as the background for exclusion from the presence of God. And I think that's an important background passage for understanding what the offerings are doing. I'm sure I picked this up from Jim at some point, but if you think about Adam standing outside the garden, peering in at the tree of life, he thinks, I might make a break for it. I might try to get past the, maybe maybe I can find a way to go around the backside of one of these. No, he's got eyes on all sides. I can't get past the guardians. If he's going to make a break into the garden to uh, get the tree of life, he's going to have to pass by the, cherubim with their flaming swords. So he's going to be cut to pieces and he's going to be burned. Now the Lord has come into the tabernacle. A new Eden has been established on the earth. And now people can come in, not all the way, but they can come into his presence and they can eat in God's presence. But in order to do that, they still have to go through the sword and flame of the cherubim. They have to be cut to pieces and turned to smoke before they can make make entry. So that the... um, the theology of Genesis 2 and 3 is part of the background to this. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode the, the uh, story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. He brings his son in order to offer him uh, as an ascension offering, and then the Lord provides a substitute. And there are various places in the Levitical offerings that where the animal that's being offered is described as a son. Every worshiper is in the place of Abraham, offering his Isaac, being willing to give up his future uh, and uh, in hope that, as Abram did, in hope of receiving it back from the Lord. Uh, Passover is in the background, a slaughter of a substitute animal again for a son, the display of blood that protects from the angel of death. That's part of the background to all the offerings. So those are little some data points for indicating that Although the offerings, the text of the offerings themselves don't give explanations, if we're reading through Leviticus with the earlier parts of the Bible in mind, 
then we can see these analogies and we can begin to make sense of the offerings because they're reenactments of those earlier events and the ritualization in some way. It seems to me that the uh, son and bride imagery coalesce somehow or other. The, the sacrifice is both son and bride. And exactly how those two things harmonize has been in my too-hard-to-do folder for a while. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seems as if they're both there, and there's no problem as far as God is concerned. One thing I think we're seeing within the sacrificial system as it's connected with the events of Israel's history is it's an extension of those events into the continuing practice of the nation. Now, when we think about the Christian faith, it's very easy to think about it merely in terms of ideas, events that happened back at some point in history. And if we're not celebrating, for instance, if we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper every week, we will have a lack of a sense of, a more limited sense of just how um, fundamental these patterns are for our ongoing life within the church. What we see, I think, in Leviticus are patterns and rituals that develop out of history. We see the same thing in Exodus chapter 12 with the institution of the Passover celebration as something that would happen year on year. And as it happened year on year, it would be something that would continue the force of that event, draw people's mind back to that event, but also represent it as something that is continuing in in its power within the life of the nation. And when you read something like the book of Leviticus, you see just how full it is of um, gustatory um, or aromatic or um, visual imagery, whatever it is. There's a whole host of the senses engaged within this, these rituals that connect with the fundamental events and realities of Israel's life. And if our worship is, in not, is not in any sense connecting that broader sensory world that we most fundamentally inhabit as embodied human beings. If we're not having something that continues on the patterns that are declared within the stories of Scripture, then I think we're missing out on part of the major purpose of worship. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have a celebration of the supper which draws on so many of these sacrificial themes as a regular weekly occurrence within our worship. Yeah, so to use the to use the example I gave a second ago to illustrate what you just said, um, the uh, the worshiper who comes into the tabernacle is in the position of an Abraham uh, who is bringing a substitute for a son and offering it on the altar. Um, that means that that event that took place with his forefather, the founder, you know, Abraham called as the founder of Israel, that event is not merely past, but that becomes part of his, as you're emphasizing, the sensory experience. It becomes part of his present experience that he too is a child of Abraham. He too is a son of Abraham who is making an offering that is analogous to the offering of Abraham. And that Abrahamic story is, as you say, not just a past event, but becomes a ritualized as part of the present experience of the worshiper. I, I guess I, I, I wanted to do this uh, at some point. I'll just bring it up now. Uh, the 
just run through at least a basic summary of what the ritual looked like when an offer, when a worshiper came into the tabernacle. So what would he do? Uh, this is an, an abstraction from particular rituals that are described in Leviticus. If you look at the text in detail, you'll see that there are uh, different there are details that I'm going to leave out, and there are variations in different offerings. But um, a number of things would happen in most of the offerings. A worshiper would bring an animal into courtyard, uh, presenting the animal before the Lord, and the worshiper would lean his hand. The verb is not just place or set, but lean his hand on the head of the animal. There's uh, in part this is a, uh, uh, a an ordination uh, gesture. When the, uh, when the Levites are set apart as the assistants to the priests in the book of Numbers, this is the gesture that's used. Uh, the Israelites lean their hands on the, head, uh, on, the, on the Levites to ordain them to serve in their place in the tabernacle. And the, there's kind of an ordination of the animal to serve as the mediator as a pre, in a priestly role for the worshiper. Uh, it's also a way of uh, identifying with the animal uh, this animal is going to suffer and do things that I can't suffer and do on my own. So I'm, uh, I'm designating this animal to be my representative. Having, pl- having leaned his hand on the head of the animal, the worshiper slices the, probably slices the throat of the animal, kills the animal in some fashion. We're not told exactly how, but we suspect that it's by slicing the throat so the blood can be drained down. Um, and then the priest collects the blood and the priest distributes the blood on an altar. Uh, certain offerings, the blood is distributed in, in different places on the altar of ascensions that, uh, that's out of the courtyard. Sometimes blood is taken to the holy place and put on the horns of the golden altar in the holy place. But the priest is the one who's, uh, who's distributing the blood and in charge of the blood. And it's important to see that that's a separate stage of the rite. Killing the animal is not sufficient. Think, think back to Passover. If you killed an animal inside your house as an Israelite, but did not display the blood on the doorpost of the house, your firstborn son is going to die because you haven't turned away the angel of death. You have to display the blood, not just shed it, but display it. So that's, that would be another stage. The animal is dismembered um, in various ways, depending on the animal, depending on the, on the right. And por- portions of the animal are placed into the altar. And the, the verb is turned to smoke. Uh, there's a couple of different verbs in, in Hebrew and in Leviticus for burning. Some terms refer to burning that's done outside of the sanctuary. On the altar, it's always uh, a, a, the verb hiktir, uh, which means it's the same verb that's used for incense. It means to turn to smoke, which has the, Im- it's the image, images of transformation, not of punishment. Uh, some people think that the animal's going into the fire pit of hell the altar is the fire pit of hell and the animal is going in to suffer the fires of hell on our behalf. No, the fire is God's fire. The fire represents the Lord's presence. The Lord is the one who started the fire and the animal is going into the altar in order to be translated into, you could say, uh, deified, uh, to be translated into smoke so that he joins the fire and the cloud of God. The worshiper can't do that. He can't approach in that way but the animal does and turn, is turned to smoke on the altar. And then, in most offerings, the, there's some distribution of the meat of the animal. 
the ascension offering is the one exception with the animal offerings, where the whole animal would be placed on the altar. But in the other offerings, some part of the animal would either go to the priests, or the animal would be distributed among the priests and the people uh, who worship, who, who make the offering. Uh, but the offering, in, in most cases, other than the ascension offering, the offering would culminate in a meal. Even the ascension offering culminates in a meal, in a sense, because it's the Lord's bread. So there's a, a you could say the end, the telos of the entire uh, process is to have a communion meal. You bring an offering so that you can draw near uh, to have bridal communion. You bring an offering so that you can draw near to have table fellowship with the Lord. And the various stages of the offering are uh, designed to uh, bring the worshiper to the place where he's in the presence of Yahweh and feasting in the presence of Yahweh. I made up a chant, if I can remember it. Teach it to your kids. Lean the hand. Slay the beast. Spread the blood. Burn the flesh. Eat the meal. The, that's the, and again, abstracted from all the particulars, that's the general sequence of offerings. If you get those five steps down, then you start looking at variations among different offerings that will kind of illuminate how the offerings differ, why they differ, what the differences are signifying about the different offerings. Is leaning the hand part of pouring yourself into the animal? Is that uh, Such has been said. It's been said by others? It's been said by a person in this room. Oh. Yeah. Uh, do you want to extrapolate or expand on that? Are you thinking of that as an identification? Yeah. Pouring, pouring yourself into the animal yeah. as an identification with the yeah. animal. Yeah. Really thinking of kind of getting on the animal's back, you know, kind of oh, right. getting on so the animal carries me. Into the fire and then on up. Yeah. Yeah. You're riding the bull. Into the fire. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's, that, that's, a, that's a very vivid way to think about it. That's me. Yeah. Jim a, very, the vivid. A, a very playful way to think about it. It's, <laughs> it's playful, Jim. And that connects back with what we were saying earlier about these offerings being, in a sense, a return into the garden, where to get back into Eden to full fellowship with God, you have to pass through knife and fire with the cherubim. And when you get back into the garden, you're surrounded by these fruitful plants and trees, and you're in the presence with God. And going back into the garden is an ascent, because we know that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. Tying that back into our worship today, um, we've often lost the way that the Garden of Eden, the Land of Eden, and the Levitical sacrifices parallel to our worship. So, from a very basic standpoint, when we come to worship— you have people from all over bringing offerings. They're entering into a shared space that is described as fruitful, as human beings are described as fruitful vines or fruitful trees. All of us are bearing fruit that are in the body. We've all been baptized, so we've all had God's fire and God's water placed on us. And in the service, we're ascending to where we are called by God we go up onto the mountain and we hear from him, hear from his word, and we end with a fellowship meal before we are sent back out into the world. Yeah, uh, that's that's exactly right, Brian. The, uh, let me add just a, another couple of glosses or two. We've long pointed out, Jim long, pointed, long ago pointed out uh, the connection uh, with uh, Hebrews 4 and the way that Hebrews 4 describes 
the word of God as a sword, we all know that, which pierces to uh, dividing uh, soul and spirit. Okay, that makes sense. Pierces our hearts. Uh, the sword of the word also divides joints and marrow, uh, a very visceral kind of image, and a sacrificial image. Once you step back and think about it, the word is the sword that's dismembering us uh, so that, as you were saying, so that we can be uh, that ascending, no longer through an animal. Now it's us who are being dismembered by the word so that we can ascend into the presence of God and have a meal. Yeah, the, the, the other gloss I was going to make was just the, the telos of the offerings. The offerings are food rites. And the telos of the offerings is always to uh, either to bring food to God on his table or to have food shared between Yahweh and his people. And in our worship, that's, that's the telos of our worship. The reason we approach, the reason we're dismembered by the word, the reason we ascend is so that we can have uh, table fellowship, uh, can celebrate the marriage supper with the Lord Jesus. One detail I did leave out was in the tabernacle as well. When you come to, to make sacrifices and bring offerings, you're surrounded by all of those plant and Edenic imagery yeah, yeah, in the right, tabernacle as right, well. right. Thinking about our worship in terms of sacrifice, I think, illumines a number of the things that we might otherwise struggle with. We can often think about Christian worship merely in terms of the communication of ideas, whereas within Scripture there are a lot of places where we see allusions to something more like a sacrifice. So we're dead with Christ to sin, and we're called to present our members as instruments of righteousness, not as instruments of sin. We're called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And in both of those images, whether it's of the individual person presenting their members or the body of Christ presenting its various individual bodies as a singular sacrifice, what we see is things being taken apart in order that they might be sacrificed and brought back together in a new unity. And within that imagery, I think we're seeing something more about what worship involves, that there's the priest is a man of flame and sword. He cuts up and he burns up and things are brought back together in the fire. And if our worship does not have those sorts of elements, I think we're missing something very important. But yet, as has been discussed in Hebrews and elsewhere, these are the images that often Scripture in the New Testament will draw our attention to when we're supposed to be thinking about how the word affects us within the worship service or how we're supposed to think about something like Christian worship and Christian life and um, our activity more generally in the world is understood sacrificially. Ethics is sacrificial, not just a matter of incorporating ideas. And one implication of that is the, we could say the role uh, of the role of a pastor in leading worship. We've been, we've been looking at thinking about order of worship from the perspective of the worshipers. But if the word, the word is the sword of sacrifice, uh, the, you should see this progression in, in the Bible. Uh, that sword is given first to cherubim. Uh, a physical sword is given to the priests and Levites to guard the tabernacle and to dismember uh, animals for the sake of offering. Uh, now we've got 
uh, pastors are given the much more powerful sword that doesn't just divide the joints and marrow, but divides and separates the thoughts and intents of the heart. It reveals the thoughts and intents of the heart. Um, so the pastor is in the role of uh, presiding at this corporate offering of the church and to uh, use the Word of God to prepare the worshipers to ascend into the presence of God, uh, use the Word of the Lord to prepare the worshipers and ascend to table communion with the Lord. Uh, and that gives a, um, if nothing else, that should um, give pastors a, a deep sense of the gravity of what they're doing in ministering the Word in, in, a, in a worship service. It is a word that kills and makes alive. It's a word that divides soul and spirit and reveals the thoughts and intents of the heart. And they are presiding at this, at a kind of human sacrifice. That's the, that's the purpose of liturgical leadership in the Christian church. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.